Well, good morning. How are we this morning? Good. Good? All right. Good to hear. So, as you can see behind us, we are going through a series in the next few weeks called Fun Size. And so, think of a fun size candy bar. It's what you get Halloween, Easter, Valentine's Day. And it's just a smaller version of the normal size candy bar. So, it doesn't taste any different. It doesn't taste any better or worse than a normal size candy bar. It's just a little bit smaller. So, we're going to walk through three of the four shortest books in the Bible because they kind of go underappreciated sometimes. We don't talk about them a lot because they're so small, but their message is just as big, just as powerful as some of, some of the bigger books in the Bible. So for example, Jeremiah is 33,000 words. The average gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are about 18,000 words. And then the average book of the Bible is about 9,000 words. Today, we're going to look at a book that's 400 words. So in comparison, it's very small. Probably only takes one page of your Bible, and it's 21 verses. So with that, I need everybody who has a paper Bible to get it out, and we're going to play a little game. So right here, I have a $10 Ready Brew gift card. And the first person who can find this book of the Bible on the count of three will take home this Ready Brew gift card. So on the count of three, find the book of Obadiah. Ready, three, two, one, go. Obadiah. You already have it? All right, congratulations, she already has it. Good job, give her a round of applause. Good job. All right, so yes, we're in the book of Obadiah today, and I guess that's what happens when you let the youth minister preach is you get gift cards. So uh, let John know that you want this to be a regular thing. But so the book of Obadiah, uh, is all about this issue of pride. So you know what I think is interesting? Is at no point have I ever met anybody who likes group projects. And everybody's reasoning for that is that they always end up doing all the work. Now, I'm no math scholar, I'm a seminary student, but if everybody always ends up doing all the work, then who's left to be the one slacking off making somebody do all the work? Doesn't really equal out, right? I've also never heard, I've never met somebody at like a restaurant or something that comes in and goes, man, I was about to miss my exit, and so I just cut somebody off so hard. Didn't use my blinker or anything, didn't wave at them. I just cut them off, probably made them mad, all kinds of stuff, but it's okay. No, it's the other way around. Somebody always cuts us off in traffic. Somebody's about to miss their turn, so they cut us off. They don't use their blinker. And lastly, have you ever noticed that when somebody's team loses, it's always the worst officiating they've ever seen. <laughs> There's no way we could have lost that game. There was a pass interference there. That was definitely a score. There were five missed calls in the fourth quarter. Can you believe it? There's no way we could have lost. We're a good team. Had to be the official's fault, right? And so we talk about this pride, and there's, we have these small issues like this that can easily easily spiral out of control. And these small examples are an example of how pride can run rampant in all of us. And that's the main address in the book of Obadiah. So this is an Old Testament book towards the end that we have to have some background for, for it to make any sense at all, all right? So the only way to make background bearable at all is to put it in the form of a story. So Obadiah is addressed to a country called Edom. It's one of two books in the Bible that's not addressed to God's people. 
So it's to the country of Edom. So think all the way back to Jacob and Esau. So you have Abraham, and you have Abraham's son Isaac, and then you have Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau. So they're Abraham's grandsons. And from the very beginning, literally from their birth, their relationship was very tense. It says that Jacob was grasping the heel of Esau as they were born. It was a tense relationship. They did not get along very well. So then we keep going through the story, and Esau was this big burly guy, right? And so he's the hunter, and Jacob is kind of the person who he was closer to his mom, kind of took, around, took care around the house, things of that sort. And so Esau had been hunting, he was hungry, and he traded his birthright, he traded his inheritance for a bowl of stew that Jacob had made for him. And so because of this, because he traded his birthright, he received a curse from God that he would never prosper, that he was always going to be against people, etc., etc. And then we know the story, or most of us know the story, of Jacob and Esau, of how that birthright ends up going about, how Jacob lies to Isaac, and then we see the curse laid on Esau, etc. So we fast forward into time, and Jacob is renamed to Israel, which means wrestling with God, the one who wrestles with God. And Israel becomes a country after Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are God's chosen people. Esau, however, also has descendants that are called Edom. And this tense relationship between Jacob and Esau carries on throughout the countries of Israel and Edom. So whenever I think of the country of Edom, I think this is why I like this book, is it talks about Esau being this like big, burly, hairy hunter guy. And so I just always picture the guy that plays Aquaman. Uh, that's what I think of. I think of this whole country of this guy. And I think it's pretty cool. The problem is, is they were really terrible people. So whenever God exiled Israel by the hands of Babylon in order to get their attention, Israel had been living in disobedience. So God exiled them to get their attention to say, hey, come back to me. Well, Edom immediately neighbored Israel to the south, and this is their time they could step up. They're from the same ancestry, they're from the same people, so they could say, no, we're not going to have this injustice whenever Babylon invaded. Babylon was always the bad guys, they were the enemy of everybody. Nobody was allies with Babylon. However, whenever Babylon invaded, Edom just came in and made matters worse. They finished it all off. They destroyed the temple. They plundered the rest of Israel. They took all this stuff. They destroyed their homes, etc. So whenever the Israels got out of exile, they didn't have anything to come back to because Edom just came in and made everything worse. So this is God's address to Edom after this because from their perspective, things are looking pretty good. Their enemies, the Israelites, they're done. They've been exiled. So that's good for us, right? And then we get to come into their promised land. We get all their stuff. We get their land. We get their food, their houses, etc. Things are starting to look pretty good. However, God is going to let them know otherwise very quickly and very abruptly. So read verses 1 through 4 with me. The vision of Obadiah. By the way, that's all we know about Obadiah. He wrote the book. His name's Obadiah. That's it. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the Lord God said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let's go to war against her, her being Edom. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations 
you will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in clefts of the rock. In your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. So some really good, cheery, bright, fun stuff here, right? Bringing people down. But Edom had put themselves in a position where they didn't have to worry about a whole lot. They lived up in the mountains in this high elevation. And as verse 3 tells us, they literally lived in the class of rocks. So here's a picture of Edom here. I'm not sure this is what I could find. I'm not sure if this is a projection or remains. I'm not entirely sure. But this is a good idea of what Edom looked like. They lived up in the mountains and they had built their home within the mountains. And so this would have been like the capital city, the entrance, something of that sort. And then the next picture shows that's what they would have lived in. So when it says that they lived in the cleft of rocks, they literally lived in caves. So they were at a very good advantage, a very high position, because nobody could invade. They were already in these mountains that were hard to get to, and then you add on top of that that they literally lived in caves, so there wasn't a whole lot of access to get to them. And then if somebody tried to invade, they were high up and could see them coming for a long time and prepare for an invasion. So this is pretty good for them. They don't have a whole lot to worry about. Because of this, though, they thought that they were untouchable. Keyword is thought that they were untouchable. But God is telling them that they think that they're untouchable, that this is deceit from their arrogant hearts. They ask themselves, who can bring me down to the ground? And God tells them, well, me. Even though they're like the biggest bird, like the eagle, soaring at the highest heights, making their nests among the stars where nobody can touch them, God tells them, oh, I can still bring you down. This is an instance where pride has gotten out of control and made the Edomites feel as if they had no need for God. They couldn't be touched. They were this great military force. Nobody could stop them. So why would we need God? Now, pride has a lot of synonyms, and one of those is ego. And I just finished a book called Lead Like Jesus, which I highly recommend if you're interested. But they defined ego as edging God out. They made an acronym of it. Ego is edging God out. And they said that the two primary ways that we can edge God out is from fear or from pride. So if it's fear, you're so overwhelmed with what you're worried about that you're not trusting God to take care of you to bring you through that situation. However, if it's pride, you have made yourself God. You don't need him. You can do all of this on your own. I don't need God as a provider. I'm the one that works hard. I'm the one that does X, Y, and Z. Why would I need God? Edging God out. But this is where the Edomites had ended up. They no longer had the need for God because they had created their own world based on their own geography and their own accomplishments. But see, this is an immediate contradiction of the first recorded teaching that we have of Jesus. Matthew 5.3, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, 
says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those humble enough to say, I need God in my life, for they will be saved. Now, with good reason, you might very well be thinking, what does this address to this group of wicked people who have been long gone for thousands of years, have anything to do with me? Well, that's a great question. And I think this really hit me in two different ways. For one, my college pastor in Dallas always told a story. His dad is the pastor of a bilingual church in the Dallas area. And he said that he would go to the Spanish-speaking service and see people worshiping and celebrating. That it was such a sight to see. It was these people that, I mean, most of them were immigrants. They didn't have a lot. They were of low economic status. But man, they worshiped. They celebrated the fact that they were in the house of the Lord. Of what, they, of what God had brought them to. Of how they had escaped whatever it was that they had been dealing with. And they were excited for what God had in store for them in the future. Then he would go up to the English-speaking service, and he said it couldn't have been any more different. That it was a bunch of people that came, and they just stood there during worship. Some people were singing, some people weren't. And then they would sit there, listen to the sermon, and then go to lunch, go take a nap. That was it. And so he asked his dad, he said, why is there such a difference between these two services? He said, we see... In the Spanish-speaking service, those are people who have to have God because they don't have anything else. But in the English-speaking service, those people have already created their own heaven here on earth. They're very comfortable where they are. So if our heaven's already here on earth, then what do we have to hope for? What are we being saved from? And the second way that this really hit me, a couple months ago, I had a stomachache one night, and so as one does, I went to CVS and I bought a bottle of Pepto-Bismol, and for some reason, I actually read the directions on it. Usually when I take medicine, I just drink it, drives my girlfriend crazy, she's a nurse, but I just take a drink of it, it gets the job done. But for whatever reason, I read the directions, and whenever I did, I think it might have made me sicker than when I was when I bought the Pepto-Bismol. Because the number one use for Pepto-Bismol is upset stomach due to overindulgence in food and drink. So in other words, we have created something that we don't even have to pay the earthly consequences for sin. In our advanced, enlightened world, we don't have to pay the earthly consequences whenever we overeat. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Where do we have to rely on God whenever we don't even have to pay the consequences for when we mess up? How easy is it us? How easy is it for us to just make our own little shell and to hide out and not allow God to pull us through different situations? For me, it's very easy. Now hear me right. I'm by no means saying don't go to lunch and take a nap after church. I'm going to do both of those things, I promise you. I'm also not saying to not take medicine whenever you're sick. Please, take medicine if you're sick. What I'm saying is, it's frightening to me 
how easily we've built a world where we do not have to rely on God. And then Obadiah says this pretty quickly. See, in verses 1 through 4, it's an address of the pride of the Edomites, and then 5 through 9 continues on to show the punishment of the Edomites that's coming, and then 10 through 14 says why about their invasion into Israel. But then we get to verse 15, and it says, For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. Do we notice that? All the nations, all people, the day of judgment is near. So it's no longer just an address to the Edomites. It's now saying, everybody, you have this problem just as much. Do you think that sometimes we let pride creep in to our lives? Maybe to the point that we don't even think we need God in certain areas. Maybe we're really smart in school or in our workplace, and we don't think we need God. We've edged God out in that area of our lives. Or maybe we're very financially secure, and so we've edged God out as that provider for us. Or maybe we're just really good with what we do. And so we've edged God out as that gifter for what we're able to do. Now, while Obadiah shows this as an issue with all nations, it's not the same result for all nations. Read verses 17 and 18 with me. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire. And the house of Joseph a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set him on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So the houses of Jacob and Joseph are God's people. There is deliverance for them because while this is still a problem, while pride is still an issue, and like we said, Israel had been disobeying God, they're still God's people. They're still the ones that God is saving. However, Edom is now representing the people who do not turn to God, who are not God's people, and they will not be delivered. It says that they will be brought down to stubble. So while this is a very intense book, we still see God's grace. Just like this background that I have here, it's a very gloomy, cloudy beach if you're listening via podcast. But there's still a sun behind those clouds. We know it's still there just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. We still see God's redemption, God's grace in the midst of chaos in this book. So maybe you're here today and you need to turn to God for the first time. You're realizing that you need him in your life. That you say, God, I cannot do it on my own. I shouldn't be trying to do it on my own. 
you can still bring me down. You are still God, which is the main point of this whole book, that God is God and he is in control. Or maybe you have accepted Christ's sacrifice. You are a follower of him, but there's places in your life where you've edged God out and need to let him back in. So regardless of where you are, know that God is God. He is in control. We are not. But he wants to be involved in our lives in every aspect of them. And that is a good thing.